1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, the Apostle Paul writes, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. There are three conditions of Christianity. More, actually, if you live in the Bible Belt, but we'll just deal with three. The want-tos, the have-tos, and the get-tos. The want-tos, the have-tos, and the get-tos. I I can describe it best probably by comparing it to marriage. When Cheryl and I first met, I had the want-tos. I wanted to be unselfish. I wanted to put my best foot forward. I wanted to please her. I wanted for her happiness. I wanted to serve her. I wanted to impress her. And then we got married. And at some point, I started to experience the have-tos. I had to make the bed. I had to do my dishes. I had to sometimes watch chick flicks. I had to go places and do things and eat foods and experience life that I didn't necessarily want to. But I was determined to go the distance with this girl, and so I had to. And it's been 30 years, and I can tell you, in real life, while there are variations of the three, more often than not, I get to live in the get-tos. The want to, the have to, and the get to. For all of you who are young married, for you who are not yet married, and for you who are wondering why you got married, (laughs) please listen. The want to's will at times be have to's. But with the patience of God and the presence of Jesus in a marriage, they can become, they will become the get to's. Paul put it this way, Ephesians 5.32, This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And so am I this morning. The want-tos and the have-tos and the get-tos are all part of the deal. Following Jesus involves all three. But the problem is the condition that many of us would just as soon avoid is the have-to. I don't want to have to do anything. I'm not saying I won't do it, Lord. I just don't want to have to do it. I want to choose to do it. I want to do it of my own will, my own volition, my own choice. But my friends, the have to is a dynamic, sanctifying, unavoidable toll road on the journey to holiness. It's part of the deal. If you don't enter into the have to, you miss it. Now, last week we talked about, in 1 Corinthians, we talked about the condition of the called. You know, that idea of staying put in the place in which or to which Jesus Christ invited you to follow Him. If you look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17... Paul wrote, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And down in verse 20, each man must remain in that condition or in that calling in which he was called. And then again in verse 24, brethren, each one is to remain with God 
in that condition in which he was called. We talked about that as indigenous discipleship. It's also incarnational discipleship. It's blooming where you're planted with Jesus in you. But the thing is, you don't bloom by sitting in the dirt. What will does a flower have in its life? It must do what it does. If you just stay put and you don't enter into the will of God, the commandments of God, if you don't follow after the leading of God, you're a blooming idiot. (laughs) Christian life isn't like time-lapse photography. I used to love that as a kid. In elementary school, they'd they'd put the film strip on. Some of you remember film strips. And this thing would start to roll, and you'd hear it back there, that kind of a sound. And and they would show you a flower, a seed planted, and by time-lapse photography, you could see it just come right up out of the dirt and, and bloom, and just amazing. Wow, so cool. But that's not what happens. It's not an instantaneous thing. We don't come to Jesus and instantly attain to holiness. No, there's a sanctification process. The seed must sprout, spread out, push up through the thick and heavy sod. And then it it drinks in both the gentle morning dew and the pounding rains. It enjoys the warmth of the sun. It bears the withering heat. And ultimately, waving in the soft breeze, holding on in the harsh winds, it gets blown away, but it seeds the ground again. And there's something in that picture. That picture of the seed that has to grow. The seed that has to bear through all of that. That has to bloom. And then it has to reseed the ground. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.24, quoting Isaiah 40, verse 8, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. The Word of God that is enduring, that is eternal, that goes on. And Paul gets it. In a nutshell, what Paul is talking about in the few verses there that we read in 1 Corinthians 9 is living in the have-to. Paul is a man under compulsion. He has to do what he's doing. You could say he is a man without choice. Now, for those of you free will folks, I understand that's difficult to hear. For those of you predestination folks, that's fantastic. He is a man without choice. He must do what he does. By the way, Rick, is it predestination or is it free will? Yes, it is. You absolutely have the freedom to choose your direction, your path in life, but God has already seen you choose it, so He's already predestined it. Do you understand? He's bigger than we are. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and our ways are not His ways. Paul is a man under compulsion. Now, let me bring you up to speed. If you weren't here Wednesday night, you might want to go back and listen, because it's significant teaching in this letter to the church at Corinth. Paul goes head-to-head with the rights of the people at Corinth. This letter, you may recall, is now probably the second letter that Paul has written back to the people at the church in Corinth. He wrote a first letter with instructions. They wrote to him, countering those instructions with their own ideas. Now he's writing back to re-explain to them why they need to follow the truths that were given. 
And in 1 Corinthians 8-10, through 10, he comes to the what I would call the second Corinthian contention. He's already dealt with one, and that that it's not good for a man to touch a woman. And he starts to talk about and contend really with their attitude toward marriage and, and sexual things and all of that. Well now, the second contention, which had to do with their rights, self-proclaimed, to dine in, a, in an idol's temple. It's more than just eating meat sacrificed to an idol. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, they obviously have have made a statement, and you can see it in chapter 8, verse 10, where Paul says, If someone sees you who have knowledge, quote-unquote, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? And so they're claiming, look, it doesn't matter what we eat, it doesn't matter where we eat it, and it doesn't matter who it affects. That's their contention in their freedom in Christ. And Paul turns around and says, you're saying something's not a big deal here that is a big deal. This is an issue. And one of the surest ways to detour faith and to stunt our growth is to defend, listen, to defend personal rights. Those who stand up and fight for and defend for their right to do what they want to do over above the purposes of God and the people of Christ Jesus are going to have a hard time growing. They're going to have a hard time understanding Jesus. And sanctification gets pushed to the side. It's rejecting the have-tos for the want-tos because it's my right to. I do what I want to do. I want to follow Jesus. And I've heard this many times. Oh, maybe not spoken overtly, but I've heard it under the breath of many people saying, I want to follow Jesus. I'd just like to do it on my own terms. Jesus never gave us that option. And Paul understood that. He knew better. So giving his own life as example in in an unusual moment of self-defense in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul begins to explain the truth, the reality. He says again in verse 16, If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am a man under compulsion. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. I'm under compulsion, he says. You're not understanding. If you're touting your personal rights, you are missing the point. And by the way, the NIV translates that, Paul saying, I'm compelled to preach. That's not a good translation. He's not just compelled to preach. It's not like he has some kind of preacher's itch. You know, and I get that. I understand that. There are times where I cannot wait to open the Word and preach and teach and talk with you all about the things that I've seen, that I've, that I've learned, that I've come to understand. I get so excited. And there are other times where I do not want to tell you what I'm about to tell you. You know, as when we opened up 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and started talking about sexual immorality. Honestly, didn't want to cover that. Because I knew some would be squirming in their seats and uncomfortable with some of the realities and the truths that the church is not teaching so much today I wasn't itching to preach that morning there are other times I'll tell you what rapture of the church get out of my way I am itching to teach about the rapture the second coming of Jesus anything pretty much out of the book of Revelation I can't wait that's 
That's different than being under compulsion. Feeling, feeling like, oh, I'm just excited to teach this morning is a different thing than saying, I have to. I have no choice but to cover the Word of God. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's, not, he's also not describing some kind of psychological drivenness or personal ambition. I must. This is the course that I have set myself on. No, listen. Paul was seized by divine destiny. I don't like the word destiny. In fact, how I was raised and what I was taught to believe, I don't think in terms of destiny, as if I'm destined and forced, and this course was laid out for me and I had no say in the matter. That kind of runs counter to the way I think and even my own personal theology. And yet, I don't know how else to put it. Paul was seized by divine destiny. Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ was not something he had just chosen to do. It was something he had to do. And in this way, Paul is the New Testament apostolic equivalent of the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah who did not want to do what he did who did not want to bring the message he was forced to bring to the people of Israel in very dark times. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 4. Let me give you some parallels, some comparisons to to explain what I mean. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 4 says, Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah was a man under compulsion. Before God even formed him, God determined that Jeremiah would be the bringer of the message that he brought to Israel. And if you read the book of Jeremiah and follow it up with a nice helping of lamentations, you get the sense of why perhaps Jeremiah might not have wanted to preach the message given to him. But he was under compulsion. Same with Paul. Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through His grace was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. That's a divine destiny. All those years when Paul was studying under the feet of Gamaliel to be a a, a rabbi in Israel, a Pharisee among Pharisees, a zealous man for the Hebrew Scriptures, well-versed in the Hebrew prophets, and all along God was getting ready to send him to the Gentiles. I love it. He is the New Testament equivalent to Jeremiah. There's a holy destiny going on here, my friends. By the way, I do believe God has a divine destiny for each one of us if we will receive it, if we will accept it, if we will say yes to it. Now, another Jeremiah-Paul parallel is they were both men of woe. Verse 16, note again, Paul says, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. The word woe, interestingly, is the exact same word in the Greek as it is in the Hebrew. Oi. Oi. That's it. The oi vey that you've heard so many times is a Hebrew expression of alas, distress, despair, grief. Oi. We we lighten it up. We laugh with it, but it was not a laughing word. If a Jewish man said, Oi, it's 
like me saying, oh man. And in the Greek, the same word is used, oi is me if I do not preach the gospel, Paul said. Alas, woe. Jeremiah uses the same word, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 18, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time. I will cause them distress, that they may be found. Woe is me, oi is me, Jeremiah says, because of my injury. My wound is incurable. But I said, truly, this is a sickness, and I must bear it. His very prophetic ministry he calls a sickness, a wound, distressing, uh, oi worthy. And Paul says, I must bear the gospel, and woe is me if I do not. Because, again, as he says in verse 16, I am under compulsion. That word compulsion is a strong word in the Greek, it's ananke. Ananke, which literally means of necessity or of obligation. I've heard so many pastors and preachers over the years say, we're not about the shoulds and the oughts. We're about the grace of God. And we are. It's all grace. Without the grace, we would be without hope. But the shoulds and the oughts are part of the deal. Being under compulsion, being I am a man who is obligated to follow Jesus if I would claim Him as Lord and Savior. There are aspects of life where I give up choice for obligation. But that word ananke doesn't just mean necessity and obligation. It also means hardship, trouble, distress. In fact, in the Greek mind, in the, the theological dictionary of the New Testament, light reading if you want to pick one of those up, it describes ananke in Greek thought as a force which defies all knowledge, which controls all things, which conditions reality. Sounds like Star Wars. Well, remember, that's from the Greek pagan mindset. It's a force that I cannot control, that, that, that compels and pushes forward and has its own way. Well, that was the pagan view of what Paul is describing right here. I am under ananke. I'm under compulsion. They even used it in the Hellenistic culture to speak of the divine imposition of the gods. You know, when Zeus would force his will upon man. That, that was the way that word was used. Now, it, it softened in Greek culture, ultimately just to mean being compelled. But Paul grabs hold of this word and uses it. And today, in Christian thought, we might use the phrase, a burden on the heart. Ever heard that? Ever used that? God's put a real burden on my heart for you, brother. I've got a burden on my heart for the church. Do you have a burden on your heart for someone, for something? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4 says, In everything we commend ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in ananke, or hardships, is how it's translated there. Hardships. So ananke is not an easy thing. The compulsion Paul's talking about isn't light fare. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10 Paul says, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with ananke, distresses. 
Also with persecutions and difficulties for for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So this idea of I am under compulsion is a distressing compulsion. It is a forceful thing. It speaks of hardship. It is not something that you just choose. Paul didn't choose to be stoned within an inch of his life, if not to death. Paul didn't choose to receive the lash for being a follower of Jesus. He didn't choose to give up all the glories and all the accolades of his pharisaical lifestyle to be a wandering prophet in Greek culture of all things. That was a hardship for him. Distressing, a nonke, a compulsion, a burden on the heart. And again, I ask you, do you have a burden on your heart this morning? For someone you know who's lost. Or perhaps someone you know who's wandering or some concern or situation in life, maybe a brother or a sister who's hurting emotionally or or, or physically or, or otherwise, do you have a burden? Paul had such a burden, a compulsion for the gospel. And this is yet another parallel to the divine distressing destiny of Jeremiah. As Paul would say, I am under compulsion. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 20 verse 9, If I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary of holding it in and I cannot endure. Talk about a man under compulsion. Jeremiah says, I tried a few times to stop preaching because I knew the reaction was going to be so bad, so negative. I tried just to shut my mouth and I couldn't do it because my heart burned too much. So Paul is a New Testament counterpart to Jeremiah. Both men were divinely ordained. Both men faced hardships of woe. Both knew holy constraints that were wholly inescapable when it came to speaking God's Word. But in the comparison, you might say, if Jeremiah and Paul are counterparts, and Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, why isn't Paul called the weeping apostle? No, in fact, F.F. Bruce refers to Paul as the apostle of the heart set free. What's the difference? My friends, there's a huge gulf of difference between Jeremiah in his state and Paul in his, and that gulf is spanned by Calvary's cross. It's life before the cross, and it's life after the cross. In Jeremiah's case, it's life looking forward to the cross, but not having the cross, not holding on to that redemption that would come by the cross, only being able to see it at a distance. But for Paul, it's looking back and saying, in my compulsion, in my ananke, in my burning heart and my passion for Jesus, I have the cross. I have redemption. And so even under compulsion, Paul talked about grace. Paul was a man who was completely free in Christ Jesus. Paul suffered under grace. Jeremiah suffered under law. There's the difference. Suffering under grace? Oh, Paul would say it's marvelous. He writes it this way, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, dung is the literal translation, 
so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Nothing that I lose, none of the hardships, none of the persecutions or distresses or anything in view of knowing Jesus. I can be under compulsion. I can be driven and forced and compelled to do what I have to do, whether I want to do it or not, because I see Jesus. And because it makes me like Him. And it makes me love Him. Does Paul sound like a man forced into a corner? Listen, the have to, this concept of of holy constraint, Paul says, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else and I wouldn't want to be with anyone else other than Jesus Christ. So, that's Paul. Good for Paul. (laughs) But are you saying that we should be people under compulsion? What about freedom in Christ? Aren't we supposed to have freedom? What about other verses that use that clever Greek word, ananke? For those of you who studied ahead, like 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under ananke. Compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Well, in that case, Paul himself says, don't give under compulsion. Don't feel forced or pressured to give. That's why we don't pass the bags. So that no one feels uncomfortably, oh, here it comes. Don't be under compulsion. In, in that situation, Paul says, First Peter chapter 5, verse 2, Peter directs his attention toward the shepherds, elders of church fellowships, and he says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. Ananke, same word. But voluntarily, according to God. So I read that and I ask, all right, then which is it? Is it freedom to do as I will in following Jesus? Or is it compulsion to do as He wills in following Jesus? And I would say it's both. It's both. And Paul gives an example in verse 17 of this very thing. He says, if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Now, where he says, and note this, if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. The word for reward there is literally translated wages. If I sign up for this job, I get paid for it. I get wages for it. Paul is here in these two ideas, volunteering or having to do it under compulsion. He's embracing an earlier thought he's already shared with the people at Corinth. Back in chapter 7, verse 22, He who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, who was called while he was free is Christ's slave. And Paul would say, you are both free in Christ and slave of Christ. If you give your life to Jesus, you're both. Absolutely free, like no man, no woman on the planet can be free, but you are also a bond slave of Jesus Christ. You're both. So if you happen to be a slave when you get saved, cool. In Jesus, you're free, so just keep being a good slave. If you're free, understand that in Jesus, you're a slave. And for Paul, it was both. And he doesn't just put this on other people. He says, hey, this is me. For if I do this voluntarily, I have wages. Well, that's a free man. 
A man who is free, receiving wages for services rendered that he chose to render, so of course he should be paid for them. But he says, if I do this against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. That's slavery. Against my will. Like a slave who has a stewardship entrusted to him. You see, it's the want to and the have to in perfect unison. One of the greatest challenges in church ministry, in every church, by the way, is the motivation of volunteers. I'm pretty convinced that Leslie wakes up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night from time to time and just goes, Volunteers! (laughs) Children's ministry! Helpers! It's, it's tough. It's a constant thing. And it doesn't say anything about the character of, of a fellowship or, or its people. Actually, it says more about the presence of the Holy Spirit because we're told that the people will volunteer freely in the day of His power. But why is this? It's, it's just kind of this ongoing issue of the motivation of volunteers. And, and I've struggled with how on the one hand can I say, hey, you're free in Christ, don't feel compelled to do anything, and yet over here go, but we need people to do stuff. What's the balance here, Lord? Seven of us gathered to pray last Wednesday of this past week. And we're sitting there praying before services. And in that quiet as we're praying, I... I began thinking about, and I shared this on Wednesday night, I began thinking about Spurgeon's boiler room. That example of Charles Spurgeon's church and down in the basement, what he called the boiler room was actually a large room filled with about 500 plus people praying for every service. You wonder why the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London had such huge success and huge outreach and huge mission. That's why. It was a powered-by-prayer church. And I'm thinking about this. You know, we're sitting there in the fireside room and we're praying and thinking. And we were praying for people to join us. On the one hand, not because they have to, but because they want to. And suddenly, I heard God say, pray for the have-tos. Okay. Pray for the have-tos, the holy have-tos. And so I did, and I warn you all, it's my new prayer. I'm praying that you have to do what God is putting on hearts. I'm setting aside the want-tos. Because honestly, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the want-to is irrelevant. The have-tos. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying I am totally okay with you volunteering because you have to. I am really good with the idea of someone saying, well, I serve in children's ministry because I should. Great! Praise the Lord. I talked to Leslie because I realized I ought to. Hallelujah! Why are you serving in kids? I have to. Good. Now if you just stand on your head, that frown will be a smile. That's fantastic. Listen again. Verse 17. If I do this voluntarily, I get paid for it. I have a reward. And by the way, volunteers begin to realize that's true. When I, when I offer my service, my help, and anything, suddenly I find God blessing in a way that was unexpected. But if against my will, okay, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. 
Meaning it doesn't matter if it's your will, your want to, or not. The question is, is it God's will? Matthew 24, 45, Jesus said, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Listen, no one ever asked the slave if he wanted to feed the household. No one asked the slave his opinion. The master just said, feed the household, care for the rest of the servants, look after things until I come back. That's your charge. And he leaves. He doesn't say, you know, if you feel like it. If you want to. If you're a slave of Jesus Christ, you have to. It's wonderful. The slave is faithful, sensible, and blessed. Blessed is he who his master finds so doing when he comes. On the way from the want to of giving your heart to Jesus to the get to of actually being with him and seeing him, a stewardship has been entrusted to you. The have to. And it is a holy have to. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward is an overseer, an oikonomia in the Greek, of the house. A caretaker, if you will. And Paul said, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful or trustworthy. My my mother and I have a, a kind of an inside joke we use on birthday and or holiday phone calls. My folks live down in California. I'm being paid back now because I moved up here, so I'm two states away. Now my daughter Hannah lives in Wisconsin, so I'm having to pay the price. But I will call my folks from time to time and we talk, but especially, specifically on like Mother's Day or Christmas Day or on birthdays, anniversaries, that kind of thing. I'll always call and say, hey mom, it's the obligatory Mother's Day phone call. Sometimes I'll change the word, I'll say it's compulsory. I like perfunctory, that's a fun one. Hey mom, it's the compulsory Christmas call. And we laugh about it, and then we go on talking. My friends, it doesn't mean I don't enjoy talking to my folks, but I promise you, if I don't call on Mother's Day, there's going to be trouble. And so there is a compulsion there to pick up the phone. There is a compulsion to be sure I set aside some time to talk with my parents. I love talking with my parents. I fully enjoy it. But I also feel a compulsion to do so at various times in the year. The have to is a want to and a get to. It all works together. It's not one or the other. And so, in the same way, laying down my rights for God's will is as great a pleasure as it is a burden. Laying down your rights for Jesus is a burden? Yeah, it's a burden on the heart. It's a weight that you feel. It's a concern. Then unless you're following Jesus, you just don't get because if you're not following Jesus, you're just taking care of yourself. You're just looking out for number one. But if you're a Christ follower, you've got a burden. Sometimes that burden is your own sin, by the way. Sometimes that burden is walking in a way that you know is out of step with Jesus and you know you ought to change it, but you don't want to should or ought, so you don't. 
And so you have a burden. And it's a good burden. And by the way, if you're in that place, my prayer for you is that that burden will not leave until you get in step with Jesus. But it's also a pleasure. What a pleasure to know that He is so intimately involved in your life, in my life, that He would compel us to follow and to align with His will. The commandments of God, the law of God, if you will, is as much a pleasure as a burden. Psalm 19 verse 10, speaking of the commandments, the the judgments of God, says they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Want to hear the reward? Check it out. Paul gives three. Verse 18. Verse 18, Paul writes, What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Reward number one, he can offer the gospel for free. Free of charge. If you're taking notes, note that. Free of charge. It's a great reward, Paul says. Listen, he was not a religious entrepreneur. Which is a nice way of saying (laughs) televangelist. Um, He was not in it for the money. He did not preach for what he could get out of it. He offered the gospel free of charge and it in and of itself was a reward to Paul. He was a tent maker. He would not even receive patronage. And by the way, it was okay. In much of chapter 9, Paul defends the right of someone to be paid in the ministry of the gospel. Thank you, Paul. That you can do that. And it can be a full-time job. It can be a salaried position. And Paul goes through and says, all the other apostles, they can do that? Timothy, set up there at Ephesus, man, he could get paid, should be provided for so that he can focus on the gospel. And Paul makes this great case for it and then says, but I'm going to make tents and not avail myself of it. And it was a problem for the church of Corinth. It was part of why some highfalutin philosophical Christians didn't take him seriously. This blue-collar, tent-making Jew would teach us about wisdom and knowledge and truth. You see, as we talked about Wednesday, the great philosophers in the Greek world had patrons. They were provided for so they could go off and think their deep thoughts. Paul sewed tents together all day long and then showed up at synagogue or on the streets to preach the Word of God. And so the Corinthians said... You're blue collar, man. Why should we listen to you? But for Paul, this itself was a reward. He was blessed to give the gospel free of charge. That is, no strings attached. No personal gain. Open-handed, selfless sharing. Now you might say, well, why is that a reward? If you're giving away something and you're not getting anything in return, why is that a reward? Because it's the heart of God. Because when you give something that you receive nothing in return for, that's what God does. Isaiah 55 verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Uh, How do I buy with no money? He says, 
Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. That's the heart of God. It's kind of hard for us as human beings because there's always a cost. There's always a catch. There is always an angle. Right? I mean, isn't that what the world thinks of Christians? If I go to your church, what's it going to cost me? What am I going to have to give up? What am I going to have to do? And Jesus says, Come. There is no cost. Well, Rick, Rick, you've just been talking about all the have-tos. That sounds like a cost. Hey, it has nothing to do with your salvation. Your salvation in Jesus Christ is absolutely free. Without cost. No cost, no charge. Open-handed, selfless giving on the part of Jesus. It's your sanctification that will cost you. You can be saved. You can be saved. Listen, I... I may be wrong about this, so I'm going to give an opinion. I think you can be saved and be completely unsanctified. I think there are going to be people who come into heaven, into the kingdom by the skin of their teeth, pants on fire, you know, just barely getting out, looking back at a life completely unsanctified, but saved because grace is free. Salvation is free. Sanctification is going to cost you something. And by the way, those same people with smoldering shorts, those same people will wish for all eternity they had been sanctified while here. Will long for that that opportunity to have had a life changed by Jesus Christ. A life of have-tos. I think so. But again, there's always a cost, always a catch. In the words of that great 20th century theologian, Bing Crosby, he said, didn't you know everyone's got a little larceny going on? You know, it's that scene in White Christmas. He's there with Rosemary Clooney and he's figured out, you know, they're figuring out that they kind of use a little angle to get... Anyway, watch the movie. It's a great movie. But he says, didn't you know that? Everyone's got an angle. Bing was right. Everyone does have an angle where people are involved. There's always a what's in it for me. What can I get out of this? Marriage without Jesus, that's the biggest problem. What about me? What about what I get? See, marriage where Christ is at the center, that's what does Jesus want me to do for you. It's selfless. And followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to be that way. It's part of the sanctification process. It's part of what changes us. Jesus said to the apostles in Matthew 10, verse 7, As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Freely you receive, freely you give. Revelation 21, verse 6, Jesus says, It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Without cost. And get this. The whole book comes to conclusion with us being drawn into the intention of the Lord. We are called followers of Jesus to join Him in this free offering. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. 
But if there's no cost, then why do we have to do it? Again, it's back to that seeming contradiction. And it would be a contradiction if we had to do it to save ourselves. We don't. Jesus saves. In fact, the free salvation by Jesus is what makes all of the have-tos get-tos. It's what makes it a want-to. Which leads me to the second reward. Quickly, down in verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the Gospel so that, reward number two, I may become a fellow partaker of it. A fellow consumer. Paul is a fellow consumer because good news always tastes better shared. Right? We, we talked about this. Bible students, Wednesday night... In Luke 15, Jesus gives three back-to-back-to-back parables about people who get good news. Who who have a joyful moment. A man who finds his lost sheep. A woman who discovers her lost coin. A father who regains his lost son. You know those parables? They come right after each other. Hey, in all three cases, what does the person do? They rejoice with friends and family. They call everybody up. The woman finds a coin in her house for crying out loud and calls her neighbors and says, Hey, let's have a party. I found my coin. And then I imagine went and spent the coin on party favors. I don't know. (laughs) They call up family and friends. The man who finds a sheep, come rejoice with me for that which was lost is now found. The father whose prodigal returns gathers everybody together to celebrate as fellow consumers of the good news. This is something, again, the world doesn't understand. But a Christian who's out there sharing the gospel is receiving reward just in the sharing. Because every person I tell about Jesus, I relive that I was told about Jesus. Every person I see saved by the gospel message, I remember how I am saved by the gospel message. I'm feeding along with them. It's a glorious feast. I am a fellow consumer. And Luke 15, verse 7, Jesus said, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So even the angels are fellow consumers in the gospel of grace. Celebrations going on there. It goes on here. It goes on in the heart. Man, join the party. Christian brothers and sisters, be fellow consumers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. John writes in 1 John 1.3, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also. Why, John? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Hey, I've got good news for you. Jesus loves you. I mean, how rewarding is that? And as Paul will say in other letters, he calls the gospel my gospel. This is my good news. Why is it your good news, Paul? Because it it was good news for me. So in sharing it with you, now it's good news for you. And we share it together as fellow consumers. Free of charge. But there's one more reward. Verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. 
they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without, not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline, and we talked about Wednesday, that word discipline means black and blue. I bruise, I discipline, I beat black and blue my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Discipline is just another word for have to. Have to. It's discipline. How many gold medalists at the Olympics this past week stood on the dais, the bema, whining over all their have-tos to get there. Holding up the gold medal and saying, This stinks. You had any idea how late I trained, day in and day out, how many sprained ankles and how much frustration and how difficult I had to deal with the press and everybody else. This is awful. I hate this gold medal. Hate it. And yet... The value is not in the gold or the silver or the bronze that's in the medals. It's the journey that makes the victory. It's the process of getting there. What makes Michael Phelps 23 gold medals glorious for him is not that he's got 23 gold... I mean, after two or three, they pretty much all look the same, right? It's the journey. It's 16 to 20 years of life spent in this, in this quest. And it's coming to the culmination of all of that. And Paul says, that's a great example. I want to compete with discipline so that I'm not disqualified. Disqualified? From what, Paul? From salvation? No. No, Paul wasn't a man under compulsion to get saved. As we've talked about, he already was saved. And so having given the gospel free of charge, and as a fellow consumer of that good news, he ran to receive, number three, a forever crown. A forever crown. He calls it an imperishable wreath. That word wreath is also translated crown. It's Stephanus. And it was that leafy crown that the Olympians were given back in Paul's day. The Olympic Games that were held, there were also the Isthmian Games we talked about that happened in Corinth. So the people of Corinth were very familiar with this example, this athletic example that Paul was making. And they could imagine the, the wreath that went around the head. You know why we have gold, silver, and bronze medals now? They last a little longer. They used to give them a wreath. Wow, all that training, and a week later I got this dead piece of leafery. You know, trying to preserve it, it just turns into dust. So they started going out and having them bronzed, and that gave someone an idea, I think. I don't know. A forever crown, an imperishable wreath, one that does not fade, one that does not weaken, one that does not dry out. What is that crown, Paul? That forever crown, that imperishable wreath. What is it? You Bible students know. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul says, Who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? The imperishable wreath that Paul didn't want to be disqualified to receive is the crown of the soul winner. The Bible talks about crowns. 
In fact, at least five that I've read, I'm not going to give them all to you this morning, but at least five different crowns that are given to followers of Jesus for different reasons, different purposes. The crown of the soul winner. There is a crown apparently given to those whose life is about saving others. Proverbs 11.30 says the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and he who is wise wins souls. Daniel chapter 12 verse 3 says those who lead the many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. You know what? I wonder if that's what Paul meant. In 1 Corinthians 15 when he said this, 1 Corinthians 15.41 He says, there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star in glory. And he says, so also is the resurrection from the dead. What are you talking about, Paul? Hey, there are some stars that shine brightly and others that twinkle and others are kind of dim. Different kinds of stars, different levels of of twinkle and of brightness. And so it is in the resurrection, apparently. There are those like Paul. There are those like Billy Graham. Who are going to have so many jewels in their crowns, they're going to be sparkling like stars. And there will be people there, I'm convinced, in heaven on that day, with a beautiful gold crown, no jewels. There will probably be people there with no crowns at all. But they're there. They arrived. And everybody's going to rejoice. You're not going to have anybody moping around heaven going, Well, I didn't get a crown. You know? Besides, I think Paul will be there and he'll go, Look, dude, I got somebody here. You just have one of mine. It's like 23 gold medals. What am I going to do with it? And you all know the crowns are for worship, cast before the Lord, the elders casting crowns. Revelation chapter 5, every time the cherubim worship, the elders are casting their crowns in worship to the Lord, and the crowns apparently are given back to the elders because they keep casting them. Crowns, stars shining brightly. All, listen, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but crowns are also given. And the starrier crowns are given to those who are more interested in winning souls than in whining about personal rights. Let that be your have to. Because right now, follower of Jesus, if you're saved, what are you whining about? There are people who are not. There are people who do not know Jesus. There are lost people all around us. Right here in Oak Harbor, Anacortes, Coopville, Bo Edison, Mount Vernon, Burlington. There are lost people right now sitting in their homes, having their coffee, watching TV, don't even know they're captives of the enemy. And we want to say, well, I don't want to have to do that. The holy have tos. I have to preach the gospel, Paul says. I'm under compulsion. Woe is me if I do not do it. Rachel, come on up. Let's let's stand up together.
I want to read you something else as we stand. And we prepare for a moment now of ministry, a time of ministry. It goes as long as you need it to go, or as short as you need it to go. The doors are right back there, so you need to split. You can split, but hey, as we prepare to take a few moments and pray together and enter into this time, I want you to hear this. Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. Peter said to Jesus, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. A a, a gift, a, a reward for the apostles. And then He says this, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are the first will be last and the last will be first. Do you want to follow Jesus? Then it is as simple as coming to Him this morning. Do you want to be sanctified and and changed and and free while being a a bond slave of Jesus? Then you come to Him. Have you had to give up your stuff along the way? Hey, listen. We recognize that the divine destiny of being called by God It all fades into one glorious, eternal get-to. When at last we get to see Jesus. Lord Jesus, there are things this week that you're going to call different ones of us to. And we're not going to want to do it. There are have-tos in our following after you. Impositions, compulsions. And Father, I pray for the grace of Your Spirit, that the have-tos in our lives would be our want-tos, would be our get-tos, that we would no longer even question whether, whether or not. In fact, Lord, if there's a moment in my life this week where I find myself not wanting to do what You're asking me to do, I pray that You would just raise a little flag of reminder and that rather than even feeling compulsion, I would feel the joy of getting to do what you ask. And I pray that we would be a people who realize that all of this walk, all of the impositions, are great blessings. You have called us to a divine destiny. Now draw us by your Spirit to your side. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you would give your life to Jesus this morning while we sing, come forward. If you want to pray for someone, about someone, or if you have any needs yourself, come on forward while we sing.